1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16. The Old Testament reading and the sermon text is Exodus 3, 1 through 9. So please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16, and Exodus 3, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. This is Paul writing to Timothy as a minister of the gospel, 1 Timothy 6, 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, uh, that is, flee these sinful things, Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let us go now to Exodus 3 and consider verses 1 through 9. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame Of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. So far, the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. As we progress through our study of the book of Exodus, not only will we learn about what happened in those days when God redeemed Israel from Egyptian bondage, and not only will we learn from the successes and failures of Moses and the Hebrews, we will also learn about God, His nature, His attributes, and His ways. Who is God? What is He like? These are very big questions. 
And, and truth be told, we would not be able to say anything at all about these questions, at least not with any certainty, apart from God's revelation. Apart from revelation, that is to say, apart from God choosing to disclose or show Himself to us, we would be left to merely speculate about God. Now, we know that God has revealed Himself in two ways. He has revealed Himself generally in the world that He has made. Here we are saying that some things about the Creator may be known by observing His creation. This is what the Scriptures teach. For example, in Psalm 19, we read, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His, His handiwork." So, so God has designed the world in such a way that it, that it speaks to us concerning Himself. And Paul makes a similar point in Romans 1.20, saying, For God's invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, that is to say the wicked, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were, were darkened. So here Paul is making a similar point to that of Psalm 19. Ever since the world was created, uh, humanity is able to, to look at this creation and to, and to know certain things about God, namely uh, that He exists and that He is powerful and glorious. This kind of revelation is called general or natural revelation. And I think it is very important for us to confess that God does reveal Himself to mankind in this way. Some things may be known about God through the observation of the natural world. In particular, we know that He exists and that He is glorious. But what does sinful man do with this knowledge that is gained from, from nature? According to Paul, because of our sin, we, we suppress this knowledge. We, we push it down, we ignore it, and, and we do not do what we ought to do with it, which is to, to, to worship God and to honor Him as God. Instead, we, we serve Creatures, We serve ourselves. We serve the creation. At the same time, we must also confess that God has revealed Himself much more clearly in other ways. God does not only speak in a general way to all humanity through the things He has made. He has also spoken in a special and specific way. This He has done through the prophets of old. He appeared to them. He worked miracles in their presence and through them. He spoke to them in a variety of ways. And as He did, His people learned not only about what God was doing in the world and what He would do in the future, they also learned about who He is. They learned something about His nature, His characteristics. And this kind of revelation is called special revelation, for through it God reveals Himself in a specific way to a specific people. All of humanity has access to God's general revelation, but we know that God has revealed Himself in an especially clear way through the prophets of old and to His chosen people. This special revelation grew in clarity with the passing of time as the words delivered to one prophet would build upon the words delivered to a previous prophet. So Abraham was given more regarding God's plan of redemption than Adam was. Moses was given more than Abraham, and Jeremiah was given more than Moses. God's special revelation of Himself and of His plans and purposes grew with clarity, with the passing of time. And all of this culminated and concluded with the arrival of the Christ Himself and with His apostles. 
here we have the pinnacle of God's special revelation. When, when the Christ came into the world, He came as the eternal Word of God come in the flesh. Hebrews 1.1 summarizes all of this for us, saying, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So Christ was not just another prophet in a long line of prophets. He was the prophet of God. For He was the eternal Word of God, the second person of the triune God, come in the flesh. And you will remember that this is how John begins his gospel, saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So then when we speak of special revelation... We are to think of God revealing Himself to man, not through the world He has made, but by His Word. This Word revelation comes in different forms. Sometimes God would appear to the prophets of old in some form and speak to them. Sometimes they would hear His voice but not see Him. In other instances, God would come to them in dreams and visions. And at other times, God would inspire the prophets to speak His Word to His people. Quite often... The word of the Lord would be accompanied by miracles so that the prophet and those to whom they ministered would know for certain that it was God who was speaking to them. Did you hear this? Quite often, God would deliver His word, but, they would, but His word would be accompanied by miracles as a, as a sign or as a, a proof that this was indeed the word of God that was coming to them. And nowhere was this more clearly seen than in the ministry of Jesus Christ. You will remember that He performed miracles, and these miracles validated that He was indeed from God and spoke the Word of God. In fact, He was God come in the flesh. And this is why the miracles of Jesus were called signs. That is how they functioned. They, they pointed to the fact that it was God who was behind them, they pointed to the fact that it was God who was with Jesus, that He was speaking God's Word. In fact, He was the Word of God come in, in the flesh. These miracles were signs. And I would like for you to see that second only to the ministry of Jesus, um, in the days of Moses, this was also prevalent. God spoke to the people through Moses in such a powerful way. And in the days of Moses... The word of God delivered to the people was accompanied by great signs. There was an act of deliverance that was accomplished. Miracles were performed through Moses and before the people, even before Pharaoh himself, in order to testify that indeed it was God who was speaking and acting in that day. In Exodus, we find a record of God's redemptive acts accompanied by a rich deposit of special Revelation, Act of redemption and revelation. I think we are to see that these two things fit very nicely together. 
God reveals himself through words, but you will notice that often his words have been accompanied by action. And I'm saying that this is a gracious gift. God knows that we would naturally doubt words only. Wouldn't you? If a man shows up on the scene one day, you've been in Egyptian captivity suffering as a Hebrew slave for, for a long, long time, your whole life. Someone shows up on the scene and says, God has spoken to me and I have a word for you. What will you think? Won't you be naturally skeptical? But if all of a sudden God begins to work miracles through that prophet, then all of a sudden you will say, this is the word of the Lord. This is a gracious gift. God knows that we would naturally doubt words only, so He has clothed His words with action. And this is beneficial for us too. We're able to look back upon the history of redemption and see the record of it in the pages of Holy Scripture and to know that God spoke, but He also acted in human history. Nowhere is this more true than during the ministry of Christ and at the time of the Exodus. These were high points of God's special revelation. God spoke loudly and clearly in these days, and these were also high points as it pertains to to God's activity. God accomplished great acts of redemption in the days of Moses and in the days of Christ. So these two eras were characterized by a great outpouring of special revelation accompanied by God's redemptive activity. You've probably heard it said that talk is cheap. Well, God has not only spoken, He has also taken action. We are to see this. And in this way, He has condescended to our weakness. He has come down to us and He has served us. He has graciously served us with His Word. He has backed up His Word with action so that we might know for certain that it was He who was speaking. So then, as we continue in Exodus, we must not only ask, what did God do? Indeed, this this whole book is filled with action. But we must not only ask, what did God do? We must also ask the question, what did He say? What did He say? What did He reveal concerning Himself, His plans, and His purposes? And I would like to suggest to you that the passage we are considering today is is most foundational in this regard. Here we learn the ABCs, if you will, concerning God's nature, concerning God's character. Yes, God did reveal Himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but, but notice that hundreds of years had passed since God had spoken to His people. This word that God delivered to Moses is to be considered most important, therefore. You've heard this said, that first impressions are everything. Well, I think we are to view this narrative in Exodus as as a kind of first impression, where God is now appearing after a long period of time to Moses, and, and He's being introduced to the people of Israel. We are to pay very careful attention to what happens here and and to what is said here. For here, Moses and Israel are being introduced to their God. And so some very important foundations are laid. Let us now turn our attention to our text for today. And as we do, we will see that God revealed Himself to Moses and through Him to Israel and to us. But first of all, notice that God revealed Himself as the one who is self-existent. As the one who is self-existent. In verse 1 we read, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. We we are to remember that 
Jethro is another name for the man who in the previous passage was called Ruel. We know that Moses is now 80 years old. Other passages of Scripture tell us this. But he has not progressed much in this foreign land. So 40 years have passed since our last encounter with Moses. He's, he's 80 years old now. But he has not progressed much, for he is still watching after his father-in-law's flock. I don't think it's hard to read between the lines and to see that Moses was humbled during these 40 years in Midian. I continue reading now. And as he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Why did Moses go so far with the flock? Well, he probably was trying to find green pastures. And what is the significance of this mountain called Horeb? Well, this same mountain is also called Sinai. You've heard of that mountain, haven't you? Well, this mountain, Horeb or Sinai, is called the mountain of God, for there God appeared to Moses in the passage that we are considering, and there God would appear uh, to the people of Israel after they were redeemed from Egyptian bondage. There God would give them His law and enter into a covenant with them. Um, why the two names, Horeb and Sinai? It, it is possible that Horeb uh, is the name of the range of mountains, whereas Sinai is one of the mountains in that range. But this mountain will become very significant in the Exodus story. Again, God will give His law and enter into covenant with Israel after they are redeemed from Egypt in this place. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Notice three things about this very important verse. One, it was the Lord who disclosed himself to Moses. It was not Moses who discovered the Lord. What was Moses doing? Was he searching for God? Was he on a journey looking for God, trying to discover Him? No, he was going about his ordinary business, tending to his father-in-law's flock, searching for green pastures to feed the flock in. It was the Lord who disclosed Himself to Moses. It was not Moses who discovered the Lord. And this might seem like a very small observation, but in fact, it is a very significant one. If we are to know God truly, God must make Himself known to us. This is true on the biggest scale, and it is also true in our individual lives. If we are to know God truly, God must make Himself known to us. This was true for Adam in the garden. This is true for humanity after the fall. This is true for each and every sinner who comes to God through faith in the Messiah. We come to Him because He calls us. We are able to know Him, not because we discover Him, but because God graciously discloses Himself to us. It was the Lord who appeared to Moses, and this after 80 years of sojourning in this world. Two, God is here called the angel of the Lord. That it was in fact God who appeared to Moses and not an angel. Angels are created beings, you know. They are not divine. There is God. There are angels. There are human beings. Angels and humans are not God. God is God. But here God is called the angel of the Lord. That it was God who appeared to Moses and not an angel is made clear in verse 4. We'll eventually 
come to that. But why then is God here called the angel of the Lord? This is not the only place in Scripture where this happens. Why is God here called the angel of the Lord? I think it is this. The title, Angel of the Lord, communicates that it was in fact an an appearance of God, but what Moses saw was not God as he really is, but instead a manifestation of the Lord. Here God appeared to Moses in the form of fire. But God is not fire. We understand this. You and I do. But think of how prone people are to idolatry and and to assume that because God appeared in the form of fire, that God is fire, therefore fire is to be worshipped or something like this. Here the Lord is called the angel of the Lord uh, in order to communicate that indeed this was a manifestation of God. God was, was present. God was the one speaking to Moses. But this is not what God is, really. And truly, when God is called the angel of the Lord, it is made clear, again, that God is indeed revealing Himself to man, but in some, but in some creaturely form. In this instance, fire in a bush, but the bush is not consumed. Three, the form that God took is, in fact, significant. Why did God choose to reveal Himself to Moses in this form in this way. I guess we could say, well, God wanted to get Moses' attention, and and certainly he did that. Uh, Moses had probably seen bushes burning before, but in every instance the bush would burn and then the fire would go out because the bush itself would be consumed. But here he is wandering along with his father-in-law's flock. He sees a bush burning, but but the fire is not going out. The bush inside is not consumed. Uh, This would have caught his attention. But I think there is much more significance than this. He appeared in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. The bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Again, why this form? That is the question. And the answer must be that the form itself communicates some truth about God to Moses and also to us. The bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. What is the significance of that? Well, the context seems to point in this direction. We are to see here that God is self-existent. God is self-existent. He is is the fire that needs no fuel to burn. And this interpretation corresponds well with the name that God will reveal to Moses in the next passage. Um, By the way, this passage and the next could have been considered together. In fact, we could have gone all the way through chapter 4. It's it's kind of a unit, but we would have been here all day if we would have tried to, to do that. So these two passages, especially, they they go together. In the next passage, God will reveal His name to Moses. Moses wants to know, if I go to the people of Israel, who should I tell them is is sending me? And, And so God reveals His name to Moses. It's a very, very important passage, and we'll consider it in detail next Sunday, Lord willing. But what does God say to Moses? He He says that He is the I Am, that He is the I Am. Is the one who was and is and ever will be. He does not stand in need of anything or anyone for his existence or his sustenance. This is such an important truth, isn't it? If we are to know God truly, if we are to follow him, if we are to trust him, we must know that he is the self existent one, the one that stands in need of no one or no thing outside of himself. He simply is. 
We can have confidence in Him because of this truth, brothers and sisters. And I will say to you, uh, the people of Israel would need to know this for certain, that God is, that He is the self-existent one. If they were to trust Him uh, as they followed Him out of Egypt and in those wilderness places for those 40 years, they would need to know that He is the self-existent one. It is true that humans are made in the image of God. This means that we are like Him in some ways, so much so that we are able to relate to Him, to commune with Him. So human beings are made in the image of God, but we must also keep this forever in mind. We are not God. We are not little gods. We are not divine. We are human. God is God. We are human. So there is something similar, some some similarities that exist between God and man, so much so that we can correspond to Him. What What a blessing that is. But we are not divine. He is unlike us in in so many ways. And we must always keep this in mind. And here is one of the most fundamental distinctions between us and Him. He is self-existent and we are most certainly not self-existent. God is, we are not. Our existence is dependent upon so many things outside ourselves. The greatest of them being God Himself. Have you ever stopped to think about this? If you're prone to anxiety, maybe you shouldn't think about it too long. Um, But this would be a good thing to consider. Uh, Your existence is dependent upon so many things outside yourself, things outside your control. You're sitting here in this room, alive now, but only because there is air for you to breathe You've had water to drink. You've had food to consume. All of these things are a gift from God. He has made this earth a place suitable for human habitation. But we could not exist at all, not for a nanosecond, apart from this world that God has made. Where did you come from? You have not always existed. You came into existence at some point. You had parents that brought you into this world, you see. And they nourished you. When you were young and vulnerable and unable to survive on your own, they brought you to maturity and you live now as an independent adult, you thought. You are not an independent adult. You are a thoroughly dependent adult. You're dependent upon this world that God has made. You're dependent upon others. You're dependent upon God Himself. Ultimately, He holds our lives in the palm of His hand. He sustains us and gives us our every breath. God is self-existent though. That is the point, I think, that is being made here. God is self-existent. He stands in need of no one or no thing outside Himself. He is is the fire that needs no fuel to burn. If the fire of life is to continue burning within us, we need fuel. God must sustain us, body and soul. But God is the fire that burns without fuel. The Lord appeared in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush, but the bush was burning yet not consumed, the text says. And again, it is not difficult to see why God would reveal Himself to Moses in this way. Given the mission, He was about to call him to. Moses would need to trust the Lord as he went to face Pharaoh and as he would lead Israel in wilderness places for those 40 years. One thing he would need to know for certain is that this God who called him is not lacking in strength. He is not lacking in strength. And I would like for you to think for just a moment with me about power or strength. 
When we say that someone is not strong enough, what do we mean? We mean that they have reached the limits of their resources in some way. They have run out of muscle, energy, money, willpower, or some other thing. They have reached the limits of their resources in some way. But God does not stand in need of resources. He does not need resources to act. God is. And when we say that God is powerful, which indeed we should say, we do not mean that He is really, really strong. You know, more strong than any other. That is not what we mean. Um, In fact, what we mean is that God is powerful in that His power is without boundaries at all. His power is without boundaries because He stands in need of no one or no thing outside Himself. God is. He is life and power without limit. He gives life and power to all, but no one gives life and power to Him. He is the flame that needs no fuel to burn. Not only did God reveal Himself to Moses as self-existent, He also revealed Himself as holy here in this passage. I've said that here we are getting kind of the ABCs about God's nature, His character. And I think that is true. If Moses was to approach God and to serve Him faithfully, he would need to know these things. So too with the people of Israel. If they were to approach God and serve Him faithfully in the world, they would need to know these things. God is self-existent and also He is holy. Look at verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is Moses' first encounter with God, and certainly Moses would deliver this word to Israel. God could have said anything to Moses. He could have appeared in any way that he wished, and he could have said whatever he wanted at at the start. First impressions are important. What does God emphasize from the outset? His self-existence and also His holiness. If you wish to come, if you're going to follow me, worship and serve me in this world, you must know that I am holy. God's call to Moses was gracious. To repeat someone's name twice as God did with Moses, was considered a friendly greeting in that culture. And so God is friendly to Moses. And I would think you would agree with me that for God to reveal Himself to Moses and to call out to Him was a gracious thing in and of itself, that God would do this. God was not obligated to do this, of course, but He promised that He would redeem His people. And so here He is showing faithfulness to His promises. God is gracious. But as, God, as Moses drew near to God, God did warn him concerning his holiness. God is holy. This means that he is different from us. He is set apart from us and highly exalted above us. This also means that he is perfectly pure and without blemish, but we are sinful. The holiness of God cuts in two directions, doesn't it? When we think that God is holy, this is a comfort to us. We know that there is no evil in him. There is no darkness in him. There is no wickedness whatsoever. He is, he is pure But it cuts in another direction also when we consider that we are not holy. He is holy, but we are not. Therefore, um, there is a kind of a barrier that exists between us and God in terms of our ability to relate to Him because of our sin. And so we must approach Him carefully. God is a consuming fire. 
because he is holy and we are not. And so God warns Moses, saying, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Notice here that Moses was invited to come near, but not too near. And I think this pretty much sets the tone for Israel's approach to God under the entire Old Covenant, which would soon be initiated with the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Come near, but not too near. In fact, we will see that God appears to Israel on the mountain. Moses is invited up, but the people are warned, do not, do not touch the mountains. Stay away. Keep back. And in fact, when the tabernacle and later the temple are, are finally erected, the people of Israel are invited to come and worship the Lord there, to offer up their sacrifices to them. But there is the most holy place, and there is a curtain which would perpetually separate the people of Israel from, from God's presence. Only the high priest would enter in once a year to represent the people there. So this, this entire old covenant uh, that was inaugurated in, in these days, which had its beginnings in the Abrahamic covenant, um, kind of spoke this word, come near but not too near. Uh, why? Because we know that this old covenant did not in fact provide uh, the forgiveness of sins in a true and eternal sense. Only the blood of Christ would, would do that. So I think this kind of sums it up. Moses was told to, to come, but to keep his distance. He was told to take the sandals off his feet. This was a sign of respect. For the place on which he was standing was holy ground. I think we are to see that there was nothing special about this place, inherently so. But God's presence made it special. God's presence made it holy. And God met with Moses in that place. We know that not long after this, God would reveal Himself to Israel there to give them His law and to enter into covenant with them. What would they need to know about their God if they were to approach Him in a right way? One thing they would certainly need to know is that He is holy and that they are not. If they were to approach Him at all, God would need to provide a way he would need to provide for the atonement of their sins. Thirdly, God revealed Himself to Moses as merciful and kind. This is seen in the words, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And here the Lord reminds Moses of the kindness that He had shown to Abraham to reveal Himself to him, to call him out of that pagan land, and to give him His precious and very great promises. Notice that God said, I am the God of your father, referring to Moses' own father. Here we have a reminder of God's covenant faithfulness. Though the Hebrews had suffered greatly as slaves those many years, God had not abandoned them. He had preserved his people so that he might accomplish his purposes through them. And so we see that God is, is merciful and kind in this way. And this is also seen in the words, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So we see that God knew of the sufferings of the Hebrews. He was not unaware. 
And now he was ready to act to fulfill the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob concerning their eventual possession of Canaan as a great multitude and nation. God is merciful and kind. So these three things. He is self-existent. He is holy. He is merciful and kind. He is eager to bring deliverance uh, to the people of Israel and to, and to relieve their suffering. I am afraid that many modern Christians will look at the suffering of the Hebrews that they experienced for those many years, and they will tend to say this, God was not merciful or kind to them. In fact, He was cruel. Have you ever encountered this, this perspective on things, you know? People look out upon the world and they see that there is great suffering in the world. And they hear about God, that He exists, that He is sovereign over all. And you and I have to do this same thing too. We have to reconcile the two realities. God is God. He is sovereign over all things. Yet there is great suffering in the world. And many struggle to reconcile the two. Even professing Christians have a very hard time reconciling the goodness of God with the suffering they see in the world. And I will admit this is a difficult question. And I'm not sure that specific answers can be given to the question, what about evil and suffering? There is so much that remains a mystery to us. But one problem I see is that many Christians do tend to have a sense of entitlement. A sense of entitlement. They begin with the presupposition that God owes us a degree of health, wealth, and prosperity. They begin with that presupposition. Does not God owe humanity a degree of, a degree of comfort? Does He not owe them safety? Does He not owe them pleasures here in the world? And I simply ask this question in response. Does He? Are we entitled to receive good things from God? Are we entitled to receive anything good at all? Have you ever thought about this? And in fact, I think the answer is no, we are not, because of our sin and rebellion. God would do no wrong to leave us to our sin, to leave us under His just condemnation, to leave us only with suffering and no hope. Have you ever asked that question? Would God be wrong to leave us in that condition? The biblical answer is, no, He would not. He would not be unjust because of our sin. And yet God is merciful. He shows grace to His, his creatures who have rebelled against Him. I think this is the right perspective. We must begin with this presupposition. God is holy and we are not. And we are not entitled to anything good from Him. That He gives good gifts to us is an act of, of, of sheer grace. It's an act of sheer kindness. So even as those Hebrews suffered those many years, they, they were set apart by God, remember, as His chosen people. And yet they, they languished under uh, the heavy hand of the Egyptians. We see that even in the midst of that, God did preserve them. There were blessings that were distributed to them even in that condition. You know this to be true. You might be struggling through some great trial or tribulation, but as God's people, you know that God is with you. There are blessings peppered throughout your life, uh, even though so much might be going wrong. You sense His presence. You, you feel the warmth of His tender touch. You, you see His daily provision for you, even as you, even as you struggle in so many ways. And, 
And undoubtedly, God was doing this very thing even for the Hebrews as they, as they suffered as slaves under Egyptian bondage. Moses had faith, didn't he? So did his father. And presumably, many others had faith too. They perpetually held on to the precious and very great promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They continued to abide in in God through faith in the Christ that was promised uh, to them. And so, this is a difficult question regarding God's sovereignty and suffering. But it will help if we start in the right place. We are not entitled to receive anything good from God, only His judgment. Every good thing that we enjoy in this life is a gift from Him. We should be thankful, therefore. We should not look at all that we do not have and at all that is wrong and complain. Instead, we should look at what we do have and what is good. We should give God thanks for these things. God revealed Himself to Moses as merciful and kind. He saw the suffering of the Hebrews and He knew he was about to act to bring them relief and to fulfill the gracious promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I would ask you this, how is this not astonishing to us? That God would think of man at all, much less sinful man. And yet he has looked down upon us in our pitiful state with compassion in his eyes, as it were. This should astonish us. Why is that, by the way? This is me going back to the previous point a little bit to flesh it out more and to go on a tangent. How, how is it that we look at the, Egyptian, the, the, the Hebrews suffering in Egyptian bondage and our minds go immediately to their suffering and then to complaint against God? How could you do this to your people, God? Instead of seeing the whole thing in a different light, you were concerned at all for them, God? You were the Holy One and we are unholy, deserving only your judgment. You, you, you even noticed their suffering. This is incredible. Uh, more than that, you, you came down and condescended to Moses in order to deliver the people through him. You were concerned to deliver a people? Why, why did you even bother, O oh Lord? This should astonish us. We should be overwhelmed with the grace and, and loving kindness of our God that he would even think to provide a way for us to be in a right relationship with him and to bring us into that eternal state where there will be no more sickness or death, where He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. What an awesome God we serve. How merciful and kind He is. So I say to you that first impressions are important. I think you can see that. And we are to view this whole encounter between God and Moses in that light. Moses and Israel would learn a lot more about their God in the years to come but this is where God began. He wished to show forth His self-existence, to place emphasis upon His holiness, and to stress His mercy and kindness. Moses and all of Israel after him would need to know these things about their God if they were to trust, worship, and serve Him faithfully as He led them out of Egypt and towards the Promised Land. And so I ask you, do you know these things to be true about God? Do you know that God is self-existent? He stands in need of no one and nothing. Never does He lack power and strength, therefore. Each and every one of you are going through trials and tribulations of various kinds. I know that to be true of you. You have something going on in your life that is, that is difficult. 
And the scriptures call you to trust in God. Uh, The first thing you must know about him is that he is all-powerful. He is able to accomplish all of his purposes. No matter how big your problem is, God is powerful enough uh, to meet the need. He is unbounded in strength. He is powerful without limitations, for he is the self-existent one. And do you know that he is holy? To approach him, you must be clean, therefore. Have you been made clean by the shed blood of Christ? He has made atonement for sins. There is the forgiveness of sins found in him. We must come to him. We must believe upon him, trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. If we are to approach God purely, he has made a way for us. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And when you do approach God, you must come with reverence. Each and every Lord's Day as we come into this place to offer up worship to God, we must come with reverence, knowing that we are coming to worship and serve the Holy One. He is holy other, He is beyond us, and He is pure. He is glorious, and we are to worship Him as the Holy One. And lastly, do you know that He is merciful and kind? He has invited you to come, brothers and sisters. He has invited you to come, friends, and He has made a way. We must come again through faith in Christ the Lord, For He is the one who has atoned for all our sins. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Great God in heaven, we thank you for the revelation that you have given to us. You have revealed yourself to us. This in and of itself is a great act of kindness, O God. And so we give you thanks. We thank you for the way that you have stooped down low. You have spoken to us in a way that we can understand Father, you have revealed yourself to us so that we might know you truly. And we are grateful, O God. We thank you for the way that you revealed yourself to Moses in this burning bush. We thank you for the way that you revealed yourself through the prophets of old, throughout the history of redemption, and especially for the way that you revealed yourself to us in Christ. God, we pray that you would increase our knowledge of you so that we might love you all the more, so that we might worship and serve you faithfully, O God. We pray that you would help us, O God, as we prepare to leave this place, that we would sojourn well in this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.